From Relay FM, this is Download, recorded Thursday, June 21st, 2018. This is episode 60, Evil Spreadsheets. Welcome to Download, a weekly look at the most interesting stories in the world of technology and other stuff you care about. I am your host, Jason Snell, as always, and I am joined by two wonderful guests, possibly our two favorite guests. I'm just going to say that. Uh, analyst at Creative Strategies, Carolina Milanese is here. Hello. Welcome back. Thank you so much. Thank you for returning once again. And Lisa Schmeiser, editor at IT Pro Today, is here as well. Hi, Lisa. Hi there. Thank you for having me back. It's great to have you both. Stephen Hackett is here as well. Hi, Stephen. Hello, Jason. We're back. Thank you for helping put the show together as you always do. Um, some interesting stuff in the document this week for us to talk about. We like to say it's the most interesting stories of the week. At least as far as Stephen and I are concerned, because it's our interest that chooses what <laughs> a very they, small panel. What they, and some weeks it's more art than science. And this week was kind of like that. Um, and so let's uh, let's uh, dive into it. Uh, Chinese smartphone maker ZTE, who we've talked about before, back in the news. Congress and the White House have kind of clashed over the company. Uh, you may remember back in April, the U.S. Department of Commerce banned ZTE from using U.S. components in its devices as punishment for doing business with Iran. ZTE responded saying that basically the jig is up. That was going to be the end of their smartphone business and it threatened their survival. This became a talking point in discussions between the U.S. and China. However, the president urged the U.S. government to reverse its ruling, saying he wanted to save jobs in one of our largest largest trading partners economies uh that chinese <laughs> jobs are suddenly important which is very strange the uh the white house entered an agreement to charge zte 1.4 billion dollars in fines and force changes in their management structure and that was timed with the north korea meetings and might have been a way to keep china happy but congress wasn't happy with that so last week the u.s senate voted with a very large majority to uphold the department of commerce's ban in the coming weeks lawmakers are going to try to reconcile a senate bill with a defense bill passed by the House in May that didn't contain that same provision. And of course, then um, they would need the president to sign the thing that is against what he said. Trade wars are complicated. Uh, we'll throw in also there was another story this week that I thought was actually a really well-written story about um, about Apple, which has invested a lot in being in China and mm-hmm. how the, the, the story basically says maybe Tim Cook is the, uh, the tech industry's diplomat to China. Uh, <laughs> I think not so subtly suggesting that if the United States government can't do it, then private industry will have to. In May, uh, Cook visited the Oval Office to warn the president that tough talk on China could threaten Apple's position in China. Um, in March, at a major summit meeting in Beijing, he called for calmer heads to prevail between the world's two most powerful countries because Apple, you know, was a little bit concerned that it might get squashed in a trade war. Uh, I thought trade wars were easy. Anyway, they're not. And uh, what do you what do you both think about what's going on with uh, the U.S. and China and ZTE and Apple? It seems like this is a um, a very complex situation and uh when you start kind of like bumping into it and trying to change the rules there's perhaps some unexpected fallout is that something that the trump administration is learning now carolina what do you think about this whole thing well there's google too right because there was something else this week that happened that um you know a bunch of um um congressmen got together and wrote this letter uh, to Google saying that basically it's deplorable that they closed the deal with Huawei. And I think they mm-hmm. were referring to the messaging 
partnership that they did back in at the beginning of the year. Um, but they have walked away from providing AI to the military. Uh, so they're traitors. Mm-hmm. So, you know, everybody seems to be involved in this. The, the part of that brought me the wrong way about ZTE uh, story is that everybody's mixing stuff, right? So ZTE did not get the fine and the, the ban because um, they were spying on us. They got it because they went behind um the the government back and and were selling to iran and and North Korea um now they're mixing and saying, "Well, you know what the president did was wrong because z t e like Huawei and other you know they mentioned those two and then say like others, but they don't mention anybody else um are spying on us and, you know, this is a risk to our security and we should not have them. Which one is it? Cause, you know, I it make, <laughs> make up your mind as to what the reason is and stick to it. Right. That's where things, in my opinion, get hard to stand by because you're not clear as to what the reason is and you making it harder, not for even just the common joe to understand i don't know how many um you know consumers are really not buying huawei because they think that people are going to spy on their phone conversation on the mobile phone um but about the deal with the carriers you know huawei pretty much is untouchable here from a carrier perspective perspective when it comes to channel now so you know just just not make things more complicated than they are. The two are separate and they, you know, ZTE did something wrong. They should pay for that in my view. Um, but that has nothing to do with a threat to the US security, which I think uh, is overblown. The thing I'm still trying to wrap my head around is why um, the executive branch of the government is willing to fight so hard for the interests of a Chinese company's ability to do business while perhaps not taking the same active advocate position for U.S. tech companies who would also like to do business. Um, and this is just where I keep getting caught up is uh, why this company, why fight this, why fight so hard when um, we do have companies, again, Apple, which could really see its international prospects um, challenge or even other companies, for example, um, Cloud, companies that do cloud computing services, um, or, or, or a Google. Why would the executive office advocate for a foreign company's right to skate with a little bit of punishment as opposed to reframing the conversation and advocating more vigorously for our own homegrown tech trade? I, I don't understand any of this, to be frank. So <laughs> I, I it, think it makes I sense. Mean, it was, it was a bit of a baffler. I think the reality is that, uh, Xi Jinping, got in a room with Donald Trump and said, you guys are killing us on ZTE. What can we do here? Let's make a deal. I I, th- I literally think it's that. Like, th- I, I this agree is- with you. Yeah. That, that there was no thought through, you know, process there as to what that meant. Yeah. I, I, and I think the thing, if this is what, if this is actually what happened, where it was literally somebody managed to convey an idea, and now this is the thing that the executive branch has chosen to hold on to with both hands. What concerns me then is we're looking at a situation in Washington where we have a lack of a 
coherent strategy in terms of how the U.S. government can advance United States tech industry interests in an international market. And when you put that together with the apparent lack of resources that are going into national cybersecurity at any level, from voting machines to um, utilities grids, it points to a bigger picture that I find really disturbing, which is that we, we may be, we may have people who are currently in the government who don't have an understanding the realities of the tech business now or even five to 10 years from now and the realities of an interconnected, um, nation where Everything does run on computers and networks, and it is a matter of state security to make sure that our infrastructures are not violated. I mean, to me, it's kind of it, it kind of points to a disturbing bigger picture. You could almost argue that the whole, um, well, not the whole point, but a, a big tenet of this administration is this idea that the common worldview of an interconnected world. Not just an interconnected country, as you said, Lisa, but like an interconnected world economically, technically, all of that is something that is to be questioned and potentially to be fought against because wouldn't it be better? I mean, I'm going to put some words in the mouth of the president of the United States here, but wouldn't it be better instead of an interconnected world where everybody gets along? There was a world where uh, U.S. interests were better served than anybody else's interests. And one could argue that that is actually the world we live in already. But, uh, But Apple is fascinating because Apple is in many ways kind of a creature of this uh, of the worldview that this is an interconnected world. This is the, it's a globalist kind of worldview. Apple is building things in America and they're building things in China and assembling things in China. And, uh, and that's why Apple has the most potentially to lose in a trade war between China and the U.S. because Apple's got resources everywhere and they've taken advantage of the fact that the, that the, the, the everything spreads around like this. And, you know, on one level, China, it's not like as if China has, doesn't have things to lose. Too. If China isn't a reliable supply chain for technology companies, they risk having what happened to, let's say, Japan a few decades yeah. ago, where the supply yes. chain moved to somewhere else, and the supply chain could move to Vietnam and other parts of Southeast Asia. There's other places that supply chain could go to. They're already facing that challenge when it comes to retail and manufactured goods, because um, a lot of those supply, a lot of the supply chains have actually moved to other Southeast Asian countries. That's right. And yeah. when you couple that with the fact that apparently Chinese people are very good at saving money and they're not boosting a consumer economy for growth the way that they would like to see it. So, you know, that you're right, Jason, that they do have their own pressures. And you're also right that Apple, I think, is in a more vulnerable position than some of the other big companies because they don't have a huge steady stream of enterprise based revenue that can um, keep things floating during a trade war that affects consumers much more directly than it affects a lot of other international business facets. You know, I just keep thinking every every tech conference I go to these days when um and Carlina, I know you go to more, so maybe you're small, but when I sit through presentations by vendors, it seems like a, an idea that comes up again and again is that is that business is global and it is distributed it and is. the money and the money flows between countries. And another thing I'm seeing is that the U S is not necessarily the market with the most growth at this point. I mean, it can still right. be a, it can still be a steady source of revenue, but the areas for, for the biggest potential growth are outside the U S and tech companies know this and they're positioning themselves for this. So 
you know, if I can see it and I'm a reporter who did not get an MBA or something, it's kind of baffling to me that you've got an army of who are presumably the best and brightest and interested in policy who, you know, are, are seriously going to make an argument that, um, no, it's in our best interest to completely cut ourselves off from the flow of money around the world and to, and to hobble our companies so that they cannot take advantage of the markets with the most growth potential. It's, it's, this whole thing is just bananas to me. Yeah. And, and Apple is indeed, uh, interesting to look at because not just from a supply chain perspective, but the Chinese market is a big market for them, right? From, from an iPhone yeah. perspective. Um, and if you look over the years, they are being one of the most successful Western brands in China. Um, so it, it, there is a lot of stake, uh, for them, but it's also interesting how you know, for me, if you think about how some of the decisions that were made and, and, um, I speculated from the very beginning that the, the initial decision around Huawei and the government coming out so strongly against Huawei, um, had more to do with and, and the, the, actually the, uh, Broadcom takeover of Qualcomm as well, right? That has to do with China, yes. uh, too, because I think as the power is sh- shifting, you know, 5G, you look how much uh, ahead of the game China is. If you think about VR and how much ahead of the game China is in VR, at the moment it's a grown market, right? It's, it's homegrown and it's staying in China, but they are moving in AI is another one. You know, they are moving very strongly in all these new technologies that will redefine uh, our world in the future. And, um, you know, the, the US is kind of looking and instead of thinking about how can we not necessarily join forces, but, you know, how what can we do? to not fall behind or, you know, look and learn or whatever the case might be is like, okay, let's try and stop them, um, with sanctions, with, um, and, and they not looking at the collateral damage that, that is doing to the U.S. business. Yeah. I was at a conference when I was at, I was at DockerCon last week and I was sitting and talking with a few analysts and one of them said, we're at a very, one of them said to me and, um, they're off the record, so I'm not going to use names, but they said, we're at a really critical inflection point in the tech industry as a whole. Cause as Carolina pointed out, the very tenets and technology of what undergird this industry are changing. And, you know, we're shifting to a model where being able to amass, analyze and act on intelligence yeah. is going to be huge. And if we create an environment where it's difficult to attract talent, and if we create an environment where you have the promise of being cut off from a global market, we're going to lose brain power. We're going to lose capital. We're going to lose any sort of first mover advantage we might have had. Again, I feel like these stories are facets of a bigger issue the federal government has with an inability to understand the tech industry as it is, as it's going to be, what kind of money is at stake, what kind of security issues are at stake, what kind of economic growth issues are at stake, and what kind of job market issues might be at stake too. I mean, if we, if the U.S. tech industry ceases to be a compelling place for people to come and to do research and work, those brains will go someplace else. Yep. And then somebody else in somebody else comes up with the the next Google or the next Amazon or the next Apple. And then we are the ones who are um, 
scrambling to catch up with other people's technological standards. I mean, we kind of had to do that with mobile anyway, because there were so many countries that were ahead of the US in uh, mobile internet as the first line experience for getting online and moving around. We're, I feel like we're only now getting to a point that, you know, a lot of Asian and European countries were 10 years ago. And we still don't have reliable nation to nation coverage like you're going to find in other countries. And then my question is, what kind of intelligence lags are we going to have after this when we're talking about AI and machine learning and analytics? Um, how is that going to hamper us f- five to 10 years from now? And I think there's somewhat of a misguided idea that um, because it's China, and so, um, you know, everybody speaks Chinese, they don't speak English, it's a different culture. And so far, it's been limited mostly to China, that these companies will not be successful worldwide. And and I think that is a really, really um, silly way to look at how these companies are operating. Because if you're looking at Alibaba, you're looking at Didi, um, you know, there are so many companies that have started, yes, they start branching out in Asia to culture and thinking that is closer to theirs, right? We, we do the same, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. But there are companies that are coming to the US and they're already here and they have research centers and that, you know, and, but it's still then going back to the benefit of their headquarters back in China. Um, so I, yeah, I think that some people are still, and, and to your point, Lisa, about, you know, the concern about the, the government not understanding, I just go back to, let's go back and replay the questions that Zuckerberg was asked, right? If they <laughs> don't understand how Facebook makes money, how are we going to understand AI and cloud computing and quantum computing? Yeah, so um, there's a little tangent I want to take off of this uh, and talk about uh, another way that tech companies are being challenged by current events. But before we do that, I want to take a sponsor break. So let me tell you about our first sponsor this week. This episode is brought to you by Pingdom. If your website was down right now, how would you know? You're listening to a podcast. You're not paying attention to your website right now. What would happen if visitors couldn't access your content, couldn't click the Buy Now button on your e-commerce site? You might not know until you've lost readers, visitors, sales, whatever. That's why you need Pingdom. They give you the peace of mind you need. They'll let you know the moment your site goes down in whatever way is best for you. They're dedicated to making the web faster and more reliable. If you're a Pingdom user, monitoring the availability and performance of your server, your database, your website will be a breeze. They use more than 70 different servers all over the world. See, it's global. It's all over the world to emulate visits to your site, checking its availability as often as every minute. Start monitoring your site today. All Pingdom needs to get started is the URL. That's it. They take care of the rest. So go, go now to pingdom.com slash RelayFM and you'll get a 14-day free trial with no credit card required. And when you sign up, use code DOWNLOAD at checkout and you'll get 30% off your first invoice. Thank you to Pingdom for supporting this show and all of RelayFM. All right. So it does feel like tech and politics are being smashed against one another more than ever. Um, Carolina, you mentioned Google getting it from people in Congress about the fact that they were reluctant to be involved in a military project, but now have made a deal with a Chinese phone company. Um, Microsoft is uh, feeling the pressure from some of its employees as well, just as Google did from its employees. Obviously, one of the huge stories in the United States this week outside of the tech realm is this issue with uh, families being separated at the border who are trying to cross at uh, outside of border checkpoints and they're being the, the children are being removed from the parents and there's been a back and forth about who's responsible. And then the, the president said he was going to sign an executive order to do a thing that he said he couldn't do before. 
there's it's a whole story that we're not going to get into too much here but um microsoft employees had a uh, an open letter to satya nadella the ceo pointing out that microsoft is a provider of technology to ice the agency that's involved in among other things the border the border patrol uh, calling the separation of families inhumane um, the employees said as the people who build the technologies that microsoft profit, profits from we refuse to be complicit so Here's, I think, an interesting and and with Google, I think what we said a few weeks ago was this idea that um, people at Google are probably right to say, hey, wait a second. I didn't think I was working for a military contractor. Like, what is our what is our organization's role? Not to say that ice doesn't need technology not to say that uh that the military doesn't need pat- you know uh, machine learning technology but am i as a person working here what am i working for am i working for a military contractor am i working for a government supplier or am i con- applying to consumers so this is the challenge it feels like tech companies are going to get this more and more over time like who who's using our products and do we want to be in business with them so lisa you cover microsoft you've t- you've written a lot about satya nadella um what do you think about this situation <laughs> <laughs> so I, I feel like I should apologize to anybody who followed me on Twitter because when um, this broke earlier this week, I went back and um, reviewed my copy of Satya Nadella's Hit Refresh and found all of the quotes that he had had about the necessity for empathy as a core part of his workplace culture. Um, by the way, I recommend reading Hit Refresh for a couple of reasons. First, because um it's not often you'll get a CEO who uh, is so clear in um, exactly what his intentions are for his company culture. And second, because it's a very nice, you know, here's where I see technology going in five, 10 years. And here's how Microsoft, of course, is going to provide. And like that part, you can kind of like, okay, fine, whatever. We'll, we'll see how that roadmap plays out. But it is, I always find people's predictions as to where technology is going to go and what the benefits are going to be. I, I find those interesting. Anyway, um, to loop back, my perception is that Microsoft has a double bind because on the one hand, since Nadella did step up as CEO, there has been a concerted internal effort to give employees more ownership over a culture that does encourage empathy, accountability, and the ability to um, take a lot more ownership without necessarily siloing your products. So... You have, um, uh, you have a company on one hand that is touting, that, that is encouraging its employees to regard their work as something for which they are accountable and something where they should be, um, using it to do as Microsoft says, which is digital transformation to improve the productivity and lives of people all over the world. So when you have something like, oh, and by the way, this technology is being used by an agency that is enacting a really controversial border policy, then people are going to be like, wait, I worked on that. And, and this is going to run up against the sense of ownership that they've had in this cultural sea change, the sense of empowerment. Um, they're going to be reminded exactly how much power they do where they don't have. And so I think it's part of it. And another thing is, is a lot of these companies are going to face pushback from consumers who were like, what we liked about your company is your, is your, your statement that you supported this value, like, oh, green computing or civil rights or privacy. And when, these consumers are confronted with the reality that the company they like may do business with an entity that they don't like or with or which aims they don't agree with, then they're also going to have to ask themselves, okay, was this just a marketing gimmick where, oh, we both love recycling, ergo, I love this company, or they're going to have to say, all right, what is the what is the more pragmatic balance? 
in the case of Microsoft, this contract they have with ICE is only is is worth less than twenty million dollars, and um, I realize that twenty million dollars is a lot of money, but in terms of how much money Microsoft is making off of their cloud services, they're probably going to make about thirty billion this year. Yeah, and it, it seems like it's and it seems like it's primarily like basically ICE gets is subscribed to Office three sixty five. That seems to be what yeah, it is. But that's what it is, right? Like they get reminders, like they like everybody's getting calendar reminders to to go separate people at the border. That's what's happening. Um, but <laughs> I feel like this kind of puts Microsoft in an interesting position in a couple of ways because first of all. That business, that, that ice, that ice contract is a drop in the bucket of what they're going to earn this year. So, um, if they were to say drop that contract, they could either do so and make a very clear statement about we're not comfortable with this. So here we go. We've decided this is how our technology is used. Nobody wants to, nobody wants to, to have the parallel drawn with IBM from World War II. Or, but on the other hand, if they, if they do drop the contract, then people can say, well, it's reactionary. This just goes to show that companies are political. Nobody should do business with Microsoft. So, um, in a way, having such a small contract is actually, I think, worse for them than having a bigger one because um, it is a drop in the bucket, but it's a drop in the bucket that could send a really strong message to any one of a number of constituencies. And I'm super curious to find out what's ultimately going to happen both internally and with this ongoing business, because again, employees really do seem to take ownership in their technologies. Like a lot of Microsoft interns and researchers have taken to Twitter this week all I came to work on this kind of technology. I don't like the way it's being used. And I think that that company is over, is, is going to have to have a conversation about, um, the idea of who owns your work and who gets to decide how it's used. I think one of the issues that, that, um, is different here than with Google is that the Google deal with uh, the military was for a very specific military project, whereas this is literally there is a branch of government and probably many, many branches of government that use Microsoft Office. And I think it's I, I think it's an argument that an employee could make to say, I don't like what the government's doing right now. We shouldn't supply technology to the government. But first off, um, you know, a certain percentage of your employee base is always going to disagree with what the government's doing. And secondly, exactly. like Microsoft's business, I think a big part of their business is supplying mm-hmm. basic government. office yeah. stuff to the U.S. government and other governments like that. Well, it's also supplying basic office stuff to corporations whose aims you not may not agree exactly with. Exactly right. Mean, yes. And, and it's different to say, well, you know, I didn't realize my machine learning research was going to be used to find people's faces and fire missiles at them. And yeah. I didn't realize that the people in the Border Patrol uh, have an Excel spreadsheet like that. That the, the expel, Excel spreadsheet seems a little bit less complicit in the actions that you're con- that you're condemning than it depends the, on what's being spreadsheeted. But yeah, I, 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 suppo- I, I suppose that yes, yeah. the evil spreadsheets also exist. It's true. Yeah, no, I, I think it, I think it does point to a larger issue, which is that if you're going to build this company culture where you encourage people to take ownership of their product and to feel empowered, then what you've done is you've created a management situation where in employees are going to start to have opinions about how you do business. And the question is, as a company, is is there a an institutional benefit to having that kind of culture? Or are we going to see kind of a walk back over time where tech companies like, no, we, we, we hired you to we hired you to solve this really specific problem. And you really don't need to care about what we're applying the solution to. Well, but the thing is, it's also so first of all, I, I totally agree with with what Jason just said, as far as you know, you need to 
have a bit of common sense when you're looking at these things. Um, cause the, the two examples that we're using uh, now, you know, Google and Microsoft are really not, um, that similar. Mm-hmm. But the, the point that you both are arguing as far as, uh, people taking more ownership of what they do is the next generation of workers, right? That's what millennials want. They go and work for a company, not that just pays well, but a company that they can relate to, uh, from, uh, you know, how they, they think about the products or they design the products, where they fit in the market, you know, their ethical stands and so forth. That is becoming much more important than it used to be, uh, when you're choosing where you go and work. Uh, and so, you know, if you don't believe anymore in what a company does, you walk away. Um, that, that's what I see from, you know, people much younger than I am. Um, but the other part is, consumers also have a say in that, right? Yeah. So people mm-hmm. stopping buying something, supporting a, a brand and so forth. Mm-hmm. And and I think this is just the result of how business is done today. You know, social media has given everybody a, a, a much more timely and, and stronger voice than we have ever had, right? If you were uh, not happy before, who did you go and tell? Did you phone out, you know, I don't know, the New York Times and, hey, I have a story for you. It, it, you know, it is much different now and there's many voices, right? Before it could have been one voice and then you start investigating. Now it could be that, you know, there's a whole bunch of people that take to Twitter or Facebook or whatever and say, I'm not happy with that. Um, but you need to think about it. You have to have some a little bit of common sense because like you two were saying, you know, there's a lot of uh, government branches and private companies that are using technologies um, in a way that maybe we don't think about or we don't want to. Um, and we go back maybe to the broader topic of, you know, technology per se is not evil is how you use it. Um, but, you know, saying that, and, and and by the way, I think we should add that after the initial uh, news on uh, on the technology used by us, uh, Nadella actually came out with a memo to the employees explaining exactly uh, where it stood as far as family separation. And, and you know, um, I don't doubt that that's actually how he feels um, because he is a very empathetic man because he does care a lot about family and children. Uh, he's proved that over and over again is, in my opinion, is one of the most true empathetic, mm-hmm. you know, leaders that I've seen in tech for a long time. And to interrupt for just in Hit Refresh, he tells a couple really great um, stories about immigration, specifically how it affected him when he wanted to bring his wife over. He had to give up his green card to do it and then try to go through the naturalization process. And then later he talks about the difference in being um, an adult immigrant to the U.S. versus the experience his children are having growing up um, as first-generation Americans. And there's, and like Carlina said, it's there's an extraordinary amount of empathy when he acknowledges the difference in circumstances and how that shapes... um, the experiences they have. And it's, it's nice to read that. And it's nice to see that. Um, and I don't doubt, I, I have been heartened by seeing, well, not heartened. I have been intrigued by seeing how many CEOs have been willing, tech CEOs have been willing to come out and say something. Um, 
what I'm interested to see in the future is whether or not any tech CEOs will ever be willing to explicitly draw a line between what the, what a company opposes and the kind of business they are or are not willing to do. What I've seen in in my years at, at various businesses and uh, with friends at various businesses is oftentimes what you get is uh, businesses driven by how much can we sell our product, which and and that's it, and we'll sell it to anybody. Um, businesses that have or claim to have some sort of code, some sort of belief about who are we, who, what are our corporate values? It, it seems to me that this era is calling that out and saying, yeah. I want to work for a place. And, and you said about millennials. I think there are a lot of other people who feel the same way. It's like, I want to work for a place with corporate values. And those corporate values need to be understood by everybody in the corporation. Because what happens is, I think I said this about Google, what happens is Google has a vice president of mil- of like military <laughs> contracting. And mm-hmm. that person's job is to, is to get military contracts, right? Yeah, and it, it's right. the job of the CEO and other senior members of the company to say, you know what? We've decided that in our corporate values, we're not going to let our technology be used by militaries. And if the U.S. government rolls a, a, a truck full of cash up and says, we want to buy this for military applications, we are going to say no. And if you say yes, then that's fine. But now all your employees know that that's what your corporate value is. And I think yes. I, I, I think that's good. I think that corporations in this era, I think they have to. I think they need to say, here's what we believe in. Here's what we refuse to support. And 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 then people can decide what products to buy from what companies and where they want to work accordingly. I think we're, I think we're all in violent agreement. Yeah. Um, where I think there will be pushback and pressure, to be honest, will be from um, shareholders or from investment banks, or from funds that are investing in these companies and say, your first responsibility is not to a, co- a, a coherent ethical standpoint. Your first responsibility is to maximizing profit. And I'm really curious to see how companies will say, no, it's a bigger picture. We have to look at talent retention. We have to look at accountability. Right, we have to look right. at what we're putting out in the world. I think we're going to see a showdown between the um, industry sectors that argue that profit is the greatest good and overrides all. And I want to see how companies come back and counter that argument and whether they can survive after countering it. I I think that's a story that will be developing as well over the next few years. And I think the other two sides that I want to add two points. One is that you also need to be careful um, about not just showing up on some things, but not others, right? So you need to really uh, decide who you're going to be as a company and then stand by it. You can't, oh, you know, if you, as, as a lot of people have said on Twitter, you know, if you're not going to come out and say something about children being put in cages, that it really puts you in a kind of a special human being bucket that, you know, <laughs> nobody really wants to be your friend. So you can't come out and talk about that, but then decide to be silent on another issue that is impacting you know, social, human, and, and, and whatever. Or, you know, something bad happens in the US, you speak out, but somebody happens in another country, you don't say anything. You know, and I, and I see that sometimes, right? Um, and, and it's, I don't know if it's just me, I pay attention. And so I look at 
when CEOs come out and, you know, offer condolences when somebody dies or, you know, and, and this is again something we didn't have before because of social media. Um, and it's fascinating to me to see who says what when, um, because I think that says not just about them, but about the, the company too. You know, mm-hmm. can you imagine if, if jobs were alive and not? I'm not in what would have Steve done kind of Mm -hmm. (laughs) group, but you know, this would have been really different for him because he's, this is not what, no. No, Tim Cook Um, is a very different vibe in in terms of sort of like expressing opinion and empathy. And with, with jobs, I mean, I could predict it. Jobs would resist saying anything for the longest time and then he would toss up something super grumpily. Equivocal. Yeah. And he would be like, oh, of course it's bad. Uh, Why are you asking me? (laughs) Well, this, this points to a, a generational shift in technology too, not just among workers, but we're now seeing basically a second generation of tech CEOs compared right. to the guys who founded the company. And they are the CEOs for the times we live in, not the CEOs for the times the companies were founded in. So, right. Yeah. And, and I think, I think this is what, for me, what is, is being great about Tim Cook because he has a, a, a totally different you know, way of communicating and, and I think has been good for Apple. But the other point I wanted to make is, you know, all of this that we've been talking about, I think raises some challenges when it comes to, um, international companies that depend so much on the U.S. consumers, right? So, um, you know, one I've been thinking about for, for a while is Samsung, for instance, that, you know, obviously, um, is a very strong brand here in the U.S., but, a little bit because they are not here, um, you know, they're not Americans, and a little bit because of culture, they haven't actually talked about big issues. And I'm not talking about politics, you know, obviously, I wouldn't expect a Korean company to come and comment on uh, immigration in the US. But, you know, where do they stand on AI? Where, you know, where do they stand on the big technological issues. Um, and that's not what they do culturally. And I wonder if that over time, it's something that is going to hurt them in a market like the US. So I think that's interesting. This, this story is going to continue because it is the story of our times. Um, we have a little bit more to talk about, but I want to take another break and tell you about our second sponsor. This episode of Download also brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community. It's got more than 20,000 classes in technology, design, business, and a whole lot more. A Skillshare premium membership gives you unlimited access to high-quality classes, leaving you free to master all of the topics you need to know. It's a great way to improve your skills, to unlock new opportunities, and help you do the work you love. I heard a conversation the other week where somebody said, uh, you know, when I hire people now, I look for them to mention Scala. As the as a language that they know, because I'm hiring uh, programmers and and that like that's the hot one right now. It's like so if you're somebody who's like, oh no, I don't know that. Maybe taking a course about it and that will solve your uh, solve your problem. Uh, Skillshare has lots of different kinds of courses. They've got a course about going freelance, which I could have uh, really used at an earlier point in my life. If you're looking for the free agent lifestyle, they've got tips and advice for taking that leap, but also a lot of detailed stuff like UX and UI design essentials, the principles of making great online experiences, um, and how you can use those skills to improve user interactions with products. So it really runs the gamut. Uh, join the millions of people already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for download listeners. Two months 
for 99 cents. That's right. You can learn a lot of stuff for 99 cents. Sign up at Skillshare.com slash download. You'll get two months of unlimited access to more than 20,000 classes for 99 cents. Skillshare.com slash download. Head there now. Start learning today. Thank you, Skillshare, for supporting this show. Okay, before we get into our other topic, I wanted to mention a story you might have missed, something that may have flown under your radar, but might be worth mentioning. Uh, I want to thank Stephen Hackett for putting this in the document. And I am an old person who had to look up how to say the name of platinum-selling performer and philanthropist Akon. He wants to uh, build his own city in Senegal and launch his own cryptocurrency as the central form of exchange. Of course he does. (laughs) Of course he does. Why not? There is an extensive website for Acoin. Of course, that's the name of it. Describing Akon's crypto city as a real life Wakanda, referring to the ultra high tech fictional nation ruled by King T'Challa, the superhero Black Panther in Marvel's Black Panther movie and comics. It shows a mock up image of an app that would handle Acoin withdrawals, deposits, and transfers, along with financial services like microloans and social media outlets and user generated content. Uh, and did I mention blockchain? Anyway, that said, he does also operate a project started in 2014 that provides electricity by solar energy for 14 countries in africa so don't count out akon he has some great ideas and also some ideas involving blockchain anyway you might have missed that but now you know um hey steven hey your brother has a charity in in africa do you want to mention it this is a great time for for you to plug it so why don't you do that yes my my brother runs a nonprofit called operation broken silence and they work with refugees fleeing uh war in sudan to south sudan there's a refugee camp there with just thousands and thousands of people. And what OBS does is they operate a school for the children in that camp. And uh, I'll put a link in the show notes to uh, Operation Broken Science. You can go lo- learn more and help them uh, help them fund the eighth grade classroom. That's the goal this year is get eighth grade up and running and then uh, moving on to high school after that. And uh, no blockchain required. You can use actual other coins, like real coins. That's correct. That are not bit related. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing. That's great. Yeah. One more topic before we go a little bit lighter on the lighter side. Uh, it's other companies trying to get a slice of that sweet, sweet YouTube pie this week. Instagram introduced IGTV, a new standalone mobile app dedicated to watching and sharing vertical video. Woo-hoo, it's my favorite. Oh, Up to an hour <laughs> long of vertical video. Because who, oh, no. who needs horizontal video? Horizontal video is so 20th century. Let's go to the vertical video. Um, this content is serviced in the Instagram app. There is a standalone IG, IGTV app too, of course, um, with sections for you to see videos from accounts you follow on Instagram, follow popular uplo- up- uploads, and there's one for recommended content as well. Vertical thumbnails scroll horizontally. See, the, the horizontal is there too in scrolling <laughs> across the bottom of the screen, <laughs> floating above video playing in the background. A quick swipe brings down the full video screen. Obviously, Instagram is gunning for YouTube here as well as Snapchat. Uh, and it, it's big enough uh, to be taken seriously. I would say Instagram and Snapchat are the things that rule my daughter's social media life. And I think I would say Instagram is her number one. Um, Instagram's reached a billion monthly active users. Uh, Facebook doesn't break out Instagram's revenue in its earnings reports, but it's estimated Instagram could be making as much uh, up as much as 30% of Facebook's mobile ad sales. No ads in mm-hmm. IGTV yet, but we can hope that there'll be vertical ads in the future. So, all right, let's talk about vertical video and IGTV. Um, Stephen Hackett, I'm going to come to you here. What do you think about Instagram, IGTV, and if they have a, sh- a, shot, a shot at like chiseling away some 
some stuff like from YouTube or maybe like trying to steal the bacon from Snapchat. Yeah, it feels like Snapchat has a lot more to lose here. Of course, Instagram has been on Snapchat's, uh, I don't know what you want to say, riding their coattails of features, Mm -hmm. ripping them off entirely. Drafting off. Yeah, drafting drafting them. Uh, them. Hunting them down to kill them. Uh, Instagram has been after Snapchat for a long time, and this feels like, like Snapchat has has more to lose uh, just because YouTube is just so big. You know, I was thinking about this earlier, like what did people say when Facebook came up? Like, oh, well, MySpace is so big. MySpace can never fall. Like, and those people, of course, were proven wrong in the long term. And we could be wrong. I could be wrong about this. But YouTube is is so synonymous with video on the internet that no one has even come close. So I, I don't know if YouTube's necessarily going to feel the pressure from this anytime soon. Um, cause I think, I just, I think the format is the big deal. Like we were joking about vertical video, but that, that is a pretty big format change compared to YouTube, which is, you know, traditional aspect ratio where, where filmmakers have been working for a long, long time. And that, that may be enough to keep people away from it, from content creators being away from it. But ultimately if this proves successful, if people like it, Instagram is very powerful. They have a billion users. Uh, Instagram's users are also generally very happy with Instagram. You know, people we've talked about on the show, people don't like Facebook. People feel like they have to use it. Instagram really benefits from people liking Instagram. And so if, if that goodwill can, can sort of bubble over to IGTV, then creators won't have a choice, but to come over if their audiences are there. But I don't think if I were YouTube, I'd be super nervous this morning. Well, that's a big question, right? Stephen, about if a bubble, if are excited. And I think that the long form video is very different from what people like in Instagram today. And I should say I'm not the demographic, so I could be totally wrong about this. But there, you know, the the quick and, you know, fast pace that Instagram like Snapchat gives you, it's going to be very different than not what they're trying to create with a GTV, which is, you know, anything from 10 minutes to an hour. Uh, of mm-hmm. content. Um, and I don't know if, and, and, you know, people maybe on Instagram have been waiting for their life for this. And I don't know, but, you know, I, I think there's not just, <laughs> I was writing about this and I said, well, you know, even from a content creator, uh, and I use this analogy, just because you write great tweets doesn't mean that you can write a novel, you know, and that's how I think about Wait, it. What? it <laughs> Book deal canceled. But, you know, it's a great picture. But, you know, can you do an hour of great content? And I think the effort that goes into, you know, longer um, videos is quite significant as well. Um, And I know that, you know, I I can't remember. I was watching this movie that was showing, you know, the the selfie for Instagram that took 45 minutes to create, right? (laughs) Uh, and I'm sure there are people out there that do that, that, that make sure their makeup and the food that they are taking a picture of or whatever is perfect. But, um, it, you know, there's a lot more effort into a long form video. And from an Instagram perspective, I, I don't know that they necessarily know the, um, and they said they're going to hire more people, but if they realize how much more effort is going to be, uh, to curate all that lovely long form. Content. Kardashians. Think of the Kardashians. Right. <laughs> um, 
Won't somebody think of the Kardashians? No, when they announced this, what I thought of um, were a couple different things. Uh, YouTube has that huge, booming um, genre of haul videos where people basically show you what they bought and makeup videos are huge on youtube as well instagram has been great for double tap to buy instagram has often been a front line for um any sort of image facing retail sector from home decor to makeup to skincare to hair to uh clothing instagram has been great for building and curating a brand and um this is kind for them. It's kind of two great tastes that go great together because they can offer brand extensions in what's basically a one-stop shop at this point. And I think you will see something like a Kardashian sister start to produce videos here in a way that's extraordinarily lucrative for one of their assorted like apparel or, or makeup type brands. I mean, if you're Kylie Jenner, this is where you start doing reveals for your lip kits and things like that. So, um, I think this has the potential to be tremendously lucrative. Um, I think it's also going to be, as Carlene said, tremendously resource intensive because video, good video takes work. I mean, all you have to do is hop onto YouTube and see what some poor kid in their bedroom trying to put on drugstore mascara. Like, look at the difference between that and a video where somebody's, you know, actually got money and a person to hold a reflector and camera editing skills and things like that. There's a learning curve that, um, content producers are going to have to, uh, scale, but the potential for this is just bananas. So you've seen it more as a potential for brand extension than not necessarily what we've seen in YouTube, which is, yes, there's the curated big content, but then there's loads and loads of, of kind of niche content creators that have a small but faithful following. I think that brands will have the resources first. So, um, and the date, not the danger, but I think one of the things that, um, will be interesting to see if is brands will have the resources first so they could define the conventions of the genre as it turns out. But, you know, again, like you point out with YouTube, one of the, one of, one of the greatest joys is discovering somebody who is, does not have millions of followers, but does bizarre and funny and weird videos. And there's like a mound of laundry in the back of the, in the back of the frame where you're like, Oh my God, just, just, folded already but um um, but i think with with this there may be people who break out the same way you had people break out on the web with their own um micro branding like i keep thinking of zifrank or zifrank however you say his name he had he did like the creative thing one a day and kind of built out himself as a brand on the web that way and i think you'll see things like that on instagram i do however think that brands are better positioned to say hey you know our our marketing is inherently visual this is an exciting way for us to lock down a really cogent brand message and best of all people can click and tap to buy right after they're done watching the video of kylie jenner getting her lipstick put on or whatever they're going to do with it and brands are how the instagrammers are making money today right that's where the source of revenue is um because they haven't been yesterday when they launched they weren't uh clear as to how they're gonna uh, reward for content. They say they're not going to pay creators to start with. There's not going to be advertising to start with. Um, but I'm sure all of that will change. Yeah. I mean, most cosmetics companies now have shifted a portion of their marketing budget from, uh, 
mainstream advertising, whether it's in uh, print publications or TV, they've shifted it to Instagram and specific yeah. influencers. So I think we're going to, I think we're going to see more of that. And I think we're going to see people who are already self-appointed Instagram influencers who are, who are going to ask themselves, how can I use this to, to make even more money? Because if imagine if you're making a living as a travel Instagrammer for a given definition of living, but you basically your shtick is I travel places and do things. And now all of a sudden, um, where before you could have like snaps of a beach at sunset or a bicycle and you say, Hey, I rode five miles and this is amazing. Like now you can put together a video of the experience and upsell it that way. Fascinating stuff. Um, well, we'll see what happens with Instagram and, uh, but th- that's a powerful, I, I take them seriously. I know having teenagers in my house, I know how powerful Instagram is. Well, One billion of very engaged users. Yeah. You can't ignore them. No, right? absolutely. And also, yeah, Facebook's got to love the fact that they own a, a brand that people like because they don't like mm-hmm. Facebook, but they like Instagram. <laughs> no, like you said, Facebook feels like a chore. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that is just about all for this show because we are, uh, we are rapidly running out of time. But before we go, I promised everybody a fuzzy puppy update that would make you happy. And I've got one. It's about a kitty, though. I got to say, not actually puppy Aww. related, but it's still the, the puppy news was bleak this week, folks. Let's just say it. it I, I do my little news searches for dog and puppy related things. It was not good. But there's good cat news. Chubbs is the name of a cat. You may, the, the nickname of a cat, Chubbs. It was a cat homeless found on the streets of Pasadena, California. Uh, part Himalayan, 10 years old about. Uh, and uh, the key factor, thing you need to know about Chubbs, he weighed 29 pounds. Yeah. 29 pounds. The proverbial 20-pound <sighs> Tomcat. No, 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 no. I had a 21-pound cat. <laughs> 29 is bananas. 29 pounds. So he's, because he's part Himalayan, he's got long hair. He was in desperate need of grooming. It took several hours to remove all the mats from his fur. He had to be stored in an office because he couldn't fit into any of the kennels at the Humane Society. Several people saw him on the internet and claimed to be his owner. They all failed the vetting process. They were liars who were trying to get a fat cat for themselves. <laughs> Instead, a very nice couple went through the adoption process and has adopted Chubbs. So he's got a new home. Um, and also I should point out that Humane Society put him on a diet because that is too big to be a cat, mm-hmm. but still he is adorable. There are pictures on the internet. We'll put a link in the show notes and now he's got a new home and he's a happy kitty, but uh, a kitty on a diet. Anyway, that's your fuzzy puppy update. Did I do it? Is that okay, Stephen? Did I, am I making amends? I think you're almost out of the hole from a couple of weeks ago. Oh, good, now. good. Whew. All right. Uh, and that brings us to the end of this episode of Download. Lisa Schmeiser, where can people find the stuff that you are doing? I would start with twitter.com slash L-S-C-H-M-E-I-S-E-R. Ah, uh, the old twitter.com. Classic, classic. Carolina, what about you? Where can people find the stuff you do? I have a Wednesday column on uh, uh, techpinions.com. And I'm also on Twitter at Caro underscore Milanese, M-I-L-A-N-E-S-I. Excellent. And Stephen Hackett, thank you for putting the show together this week. And thank you in advance for hosting the show next week because I am going on vacation. So I'll be back. And in fact, we're actually going to then skip a week because of summer vacation reasons. Uh, Stephen and I will both be far away from home. Uh, So I'll be back in three weeks, Mm -hmm. but Stephen will be back next week hosting the show. And I look forward to what the whatever the fuzzy puppy update might be next week, Stephen. Do, do me proud. Do me proud. It's a lot of pressure, Jason. Yeah, yeah. But until then, we will keep watching the headlines. And by we, I mean Stephen Hackett. So you don't have to. I've been your host, Jason Snell. Goodbye, everybody. See you in a few weeks. Bye.